I claimed that quantum mechanics was the universal bullshit attractor. <laughs> uh, so that nothing, nothing, I mean, quantum mechanics is just the most perfect thing ever for pseudoscience. Um, you know, so that is take some, take some pseudoscience, Google it with the word quantum. I guarantee you there's a product or a book or some thing, anything there is, there's quantum Bigfoot. Hello, my geeselings. This is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 72. And this episode is with Craig Callender, who's professor of philosophy and co-director of the Institute for Practical Ethics at UC San Diego. Craig works across the philosophy of science, and his research has touched on a bunch of different topics within that field. So he's worked on the philosophy of physics. Uh, his dissertation at Rutgers concerned uh, quantum mechanics and the direction of time, and he's worked on applied ethics, the metaphysics of time, so all, all sorts of different areas in the philosophy of science. Recently, though, Craig has been teaching a very cool, very important course, I think, at UC San Diego called Science versus Pseudoscience, and that's what we talk about in this episode. So I wanted to make clear right off the bat that this isn't at all an elitist undertaking because even if I find such theories as quantum Bigfoot or flat earth funny, I also find them quite interesting. I mean, that's why Craig is teaching a course on this sort of stuff. And I have all sorts of irrational beliefs myself that I'm both aware of and unaware of. And there are often times where I'm listening to pseudoscience or hearing about pseudoscience or hearing about conspiracy theories, and I'm often quite tempted to uh, believe them. And maybe sometimes I even do, though I won't be confessing to that uh, on this episode. So I just don't want the conversation to be construed as us punching down. But anyway, so in this episode, we get into the distinction between science and pseudoscience. And in the process, we talk about a number of particular cases uh, that might go one way or the other. So we get into super string theory, psychoanalysis, quantum Bigfoot, as I've already mentioned, uh, flat earth, as I've already mentioned, astrology, pseudo histories, uh, the rampant abuse of terminology from quantum physics. We talk about all sorts of things. And before we go into the episode, I will mention, so Craig's most recent book is What Makes Time Special, and it won the prestigious Lakatos Award in 2018, so you should definitely have a look at that. And you can also keep up with Craig on his website at craigcalendar.com. So a couple of other things. Uh, pins, who you might be able to see in my lap, who is now, she has her fans among the geeselings, and she is now to be known henceforth as the podcat. This is now the pins cast podcat. But I had a, a scare with her this morning. I woke up and she wasn't in my apartment. And I had an interview. I spoke with Jonathan Wolf of Oxford this morning. So that episode was great and will be coming out at some point in the near future. But pins the the feline love of my my life at this moment was not around and I was just freaking out. So I I looked 
everywhere. I opened up a can of her favorite cat food because she usually will just run to me if I do that. And she didn't come out. So I looked in her bed. I looked in all the drawers. I was terrified. I thought that she must have died somehow and I would find her under. I don't know where I would find her under. I was looking under backpacks. I thought, oh, God, did she jump into the refrigerator last night? Like when I made my pre-bed protein pudding and the answer was no and i thought oh gosh did she did she like wander into one of those big like toilet paper bags or toilet paper or uh, paper towel bags and suffocate so i was just freaking out and i couldn't find her anywhere and then i sent like an emergency message to the building i live in and then i went outside and was looking in the surrounding areas and then i came back into my building and was looking through the common areas and then maybe four or five hundred feet from my apartment i got on my hands and knees and was looking under furniture and then i look under a couch and i see these two green glowing orbs looking back at me and i found her and she was quite angry but i got her back into the apartment and as you can see she's now happy as a clam but i realized what must have happened is as i was taking mishka out and he's the dog who doesn't make appearances so often on the podcast as i was taking him out last night she must have uh snuck out after me and last night as i i came back from walking him before i went to bed and She's usually monitoring me as I brush my teeth, but occasionally she'll just be in her bed. And I thought, okay, she's probably just doing that. And then when I got into bed and she didn't uh, come snuggle with me as she often does, I thought, well, she's just being mean or something. And I, I just didn't think anything of it. But now I know that she was just out wandering the building all night or perhaps just hanging out under that couch where I found her this morning. Okay, thanks for listening to that story. I thought it was fun, but last things I'll say are I have to mention that reviews, comments, likes, subscribes, these are all endlessly appreciated. I also have another channel on Twitch and YouTube called Robinson Eats, in which at this point, at least, I just have a pint of ice cream for breakfast, sometimes a quart, sometimes even more than a quart of ice cream every morning with whoever shows up and wants to talk. And then, of course, there's the newest, boldest, most daring fashion house in the Northern Hemisphere, at least, certainly, but perhaps both hemispheres. Uh, and that's Robinson's Fashion Empire, which you can also find pretty easily, along with everything else, uh, through RobinsonEarhart.com. And now, without any further ado... I hope you, my geeselings, enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Craig. What made you decide to teach a course on science versus pseudoscience? I mean, it seems rather prescient uh, right now around the time of the pandemic, but I don't know when you started teaching it. Uh, yeah, I started uh, the the course you're mentioning uh, began just uh, only uh, recently, but there was a kind of prototype of it before, and yeah, I um, had the idea. You know, I've been very interested in um, various influences upon science that are you know negative ones uh, for a long time. Uh, so yeah, I've taught. Uh, with Naomi Oreskes on, you know, the kind of tobacco strategy 
where big tobacco would, you know, influence science in various ways. And so this kind of thing has always been a, an interest of mine. And so I had the idea, you know, so we, and then of course, as the pandemic showed, you know, have the kind of waves, how, how important, you know, the distinction between science and non-science is, or science and pseudoscience. And, you know, you have these waves of misinformation, you know, uh, attacking society really, uh, and hurting the, the most, usually it hurts the most vulnerable people in society. Um, and so I had this idea of, you know, doing this course, which I thought would be fun. It is fun where start off with really easy things. So, you know, power, power wristbands, you know, that make you, make your, you know, sports figures more powerful and crystals and, right. uh, homeopathy and astrology, and then work it, work the way to misinformation. So I thought it'd be fun to have this course that, you know, where we began with really easy things, tapping into students, you know, natural ability to detect bullshit and then move to harder things. And along the way, sneak in a lot of scientific methodology, statistics, causation versus correlation, um, all sorts of things about experimentation. And the hope was to sort of arm them for the future against, you know, when they see uh, misinformation coming their way, uh, could they be armed for the future in certain ways? Um, and the background also is a, there's only one or two studies I know of this way, but if we look at classes that, uh, so we have in philosophy, we have all these classes that teach a lot of logic, all these classes that teach a lot of probability theory. And, you know, if you look at studies on what people believe before and after those classes, um, you know, it's not so clear that, you know, what the lasting value of, of some of that is. And so what I'm thinking of is, if you ask people, you know, before and after that class, you know, do they believe in the Loch Ness monster? Uh, you know, after a logic class, <clears throat> well, I think I saw a study where, you know, basically it's roughly the same number believe in the Loch Ness monster before and after. If you teach a class and you actually have a, you know, an hour on whether the Loch Ness monster <laughs> exists, then you know the number of believers in the Loch Ness monster plummets. And so having this kind of not content neutral sort of scientific reasoning type class, but rather diving into the content, I think is psychologically more salient and may, you know, makes, and then students can then think, oh, well, this new information I'm being told uh, is like, you know, it, 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 it reminds me a little bit of the Loch Ness monster uh, evidence and, you know, and then they're, they're kind of armed a little bit better for the future, I think. Mm -hmm. And, I, I was hoping to get into particulars a little bit later, but you know, you I always hear about big tobacco influencing science, but I I don't think I actually know any of the ways in which it did. Are any of those still sort of fresh in your mind? Yeah, uh, yeah, and so it's it teaches the very important lessons, I think. Uh, so tobacco, you know, causes uh, uh, cancer. But now if you're big tobacco and you've got a lot of money to spend and you're, you know, trying to defend your product, you um, can now put money into academia, put money into science. And what you can do is you can be pretty clever about it where you can, um, well, first of all, you could just, you know, hire corrupt people 
to produce mm -hmm. corrupt evidence. But that's not really what they, you know, mostly wanted to do. What they, in fact, in the, the Merchants of Doubt book, there's a memo where they, where one tobacco executive is saying, it's best to get scientists who are as independent of us as possible. And so what we have a, is a case where, so what's interesting, I think most interesting, are cases where the scientist is completely squeaky clean and they're doing good science. But now what is this tobacco strategy doing? Well, of course, you, you know, there are other things that uh, cause lung cancer, not just smoking. Uh, so you can put money into asbestos, uh, studying asbestos and lung cancer. You can put money into all these other things that also cause those, those cancers. Some cancers are easier to find than others. So you can put money into cancers that are harder to find uh, and harder to you know, make a kind of causal claim. And so you can sort of shape the research agenda of the entire field by putting money, more money into certain areas than you know, are the sort of natural areas. And so what you've done, what you can do is really just kind of distort the research landscape so that you end up getting an overall impression that maybe smoking isn't such a big cause of, of lung cancer. And so there's, so that's why I think of it as sort of the most interesting thing, because of course, when people take money, they always say, well, you know, the, the funder didn't influence my research outcomes. And that's almost always true. Mm -hmm. And so what they're saying is they're, they're clean and they're doing good science. And they probably are, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't a big effect from all that money being dumped into the, into the field. And so if you think about it, it's a little bit like the kind of guns don't kill people, people do mm -hmm. sort of argument, which is a terrible argument because of course, guns change the context. Uh, they change you and the context you'll be in and they end up changing the kind of all sorts of things in society. You might have bought a gun for you know completely innocent reasons, uh, you know to defend your family or something like this, and have no no negative effect, you know thoughts about it whatsoever. But we all recognize that that's a very naive sort of argument, and so is this idea that uh, you know that taking money from tobacco would be you know innocent because as long as they didn't dictate your outcomes, you know that also is naive because it's now pumped up various parts of the. Um, research agenda mm -hmm. throughout the world. Mm -hmm. Now, I recently spoke with Steve Yablo of MIT about what philosophy is. And our conversation started by pointing out the connection to Popper's demarcation problem with science, though we didn't really get into it at all. And if I recall correctly, Popper was or the problem is how we separate or distinguish science from everything else, including, uh, funnily enough, uh, psychoanalysis. <laughs> I think that was one of the examples. Now, is this the is that roughly what the demarcation problem is, or, or how did Popper pose it? <clears throat> yeah, so in philosophy of science, you know, it was a huge defining issue for the field. Uh, you know, kind of rose up with the field of philosophy of science or the modern version of philosophy of science was, was this demarcation problem. And, you know, there were certain things that uh, many philosophers of science, you know, really didn't like. You know, Popper was very impressed with general relativity and Eddington's experiment, and he really didn't like psychoanalysis and, 
uh, and Marxism. And, and so he, you know, then has this criterion called the falsification criterion in which he's going to separate, you know, science from pseudoscience. You would then make a separate set distinction between sort of good science and bad science, or, you know, there'd be a kind of spectrum there. All of that would be falsifiable, but then there'd be this distinction between the unfalsifiable and the falsifiable. Um, and so it's, um, you know, so things, and so I, well, I have different sorts of views about this, but, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll say something about it, I'm sure later, uh, but, you know, Popper's criterion is widely viewed as, uh, you know, not very good one. Um, astrology, for instance, you know, everyone calls it a pseudoscience, but it actually does make predictions. They're just false ones. And so, you know, that just turns out to be bad science, not pseudoscience on that kind of Popperian distinction. Um, and so most people don't think of the Popper thing as really, um, well, there's also an issue about what is, what, what is the able part of the falsifiable and what, you know, what makes something uh, falsifiable. So most people think of the Popper criterion as not a very good one. And then you had all of these philosophers for a long time come up with, try to come up with different fixes for what would separate science from pseudoscience. And so you then had other proposals, you know, so like Kuhnian type ones where you have science as part of a, you know, a progressive research program uh, and not pseudoscience is one that where it's not part of a progressive research program. And I had all these different sorts of th theories. And then you have these kind of multi-criterialists where you have, you know, pick your fav five favorite features of science that's what science is, and pseudoscience lacks one or more of those. I think all of these are, you know, kind of mugs game. I mean, you're basically trying to do a kind of necessary and sufficient conditions for science versus pseudoscience. It's, and then, you know, the fact that some science is so bad that it bleeds into where you wonder whether it's really science at all, it's, it's all pretty gray. Um, now, I'm not saying, um, you know, I, I think there is some, you know, you probably something like the multi-criterialist thing is right, but it's probably not succinctly statable and it's probably context dependent. And so I think it's not really all that the philosophical problem of demarcation is, I don't think especially interesting. Um, there's a kind of critique of it. I mean, it's sort of hard for philosophers sometimes to get to think about this because I get brought up thinking that there is this, big philosophical issue and that there is a principal distinction between the two. If you kind of step outside of philosophy and you look at more from the point of view of like science studies or history of science, mm -hmm. you know, I think there's a historian at uh, Princeton uh, who has an article, I forget his name, but it, he uh, has an article where he just says, you know, pseudoscience is just basically a label from one group against another group. That's an insult. Yeah, you know, like calling somebody a jerk, and then you you're not going to find that kind of principled distinction that you know the jerk problem. How do we separate the jerks from the non-jerks in a kind of context-independent way? That's not going to be a very successful kind of program. And because if you look at it, you know, so if if you look at the attacks, usually, uh, you know, do they all have something in common? So, 
a lot of people, you know, will attack superstring theory in physics and say it's pseudoscientific. People will say astrology, pseudoscientific. Um, you know, uh, pyramid, you know, pyramids and crystals and all of that, pseudoscientific. Do they really have, you know, something, you know, is there something really in common amongst all of the, those sorts of things? It seems kind of hard to believe it, you know, so from this historian's point of view, you know, we would think, well, the attack on super strength theory is just, it's a, it's a way of a bunch of people in physics who don't like super strength theory, you know, because it's hard to, it's hard to falsify. It's hard to, you know, make predictions, et cetera. Um, you know, saying they don't like it basically that it's not not a promising theory um but to think that there's some sort of deep principle divide between science and pseudoscience is probably not um well i wouldn't want to spend my life trying to figure out the the, the distinction between the two that said there's then the huge practical issue of demarcation you know that's everywhere in society all the time you know so not just science sorry not just in science right yeah uh where you know so when you look at like in law you know in courts uh courts have to decide you know they have these Daubert hearings to decide what counts what type of evidence can be heard in court and what type can't you know by you know scientific evidence um that's a practical demarcation problem that'll decide it'll often effectively decide whether you win or lose in court uh, that's a judge deciding this is pseudoscientific and this is scientific. Uh, often a judge with no science training or knowledge is making that decision. So you have all of these sorts of practical issues happening all the time. Um, and uh, so it's a huge, so the, the practical issue is a huge issue. I'm, I'm not sure that the philosophical issue, if it's assuming that you have a principal distinction, is really, you know, uh, it's probably an issue, but it's a pretty gray one that doesn't like, doesn't have a super high chance of a solution. Hmm. Well, there are three cases that you, well, one I mentioned, two that you mentioned that I'm particularly curious about. So I'm hoping we can go into a little more detail there. Uh, super string theories, one that you mentioned uh, that people, some physics, physicists label as pseudoscientific, uh, largely just as an attack. But what, and I know that it would probably take years and a PhD to uh, give a good explanation of what super string theory is, but can you give a, a quite high level explanation of what super string theory is and why it should be categorized as science? Um. Yeah, I can give it a try. It's been a while since I've worked in that area much, but uh, yeah. So, superstring theory is a, a type of quantum gravity. Quantum gravity is uh, a kind of. There are all these research programs in quantum gravity. And when quantum gravity is um, uh, the attempt to, you know, make consistent or even unify uh, our two best theories, uh, general relativity, our best theory of the big and quantum mechanics, our best theory of the small. Superstring theory is one of the, you know, one of the programs and probably the most, the biggest one. Uh, others are, would be things like uh, loop quantum gravity and 
causal set theory and other things. Um, they all they all start off with a kind of cool idea, and so in the late late seventies, string theory, superstring theory began by noticing that if they quantize, just follow the sort of normal quantization procedures you'd use when you go from classical physics to quantum physics. If you assume that the fundamental entities were not point particles but strings, if they then quantized, then something that like that looks a lot like general relativity pops out. And so that's super cool. And I would guess that that's very important because people are trying to find this universal theory that will connect relativity to quantum yeah. theory. That's uh, super exciting because if this was right, then something like general relativity kind of just pops out of quantum, quantum mechanics in some sense. Um, and so now you have, but, but the theory, you know, then ends up having all sorts of, you know, so now you have these one dimensional strings, they sweep out a, what's called a world sheet and okay. through, through time. And then you sort of have this background space time, but then the world sheet, and then there's all these features of the world, world sheet. And then to solve various problems, all, it, it all gets massively complicated and you know you end up in many higher dimensions than you thought um and then the and so of course in terms of rigor no one's ever going to accuse superstring theory of being pseudoscientific you know it's it was you know one of its great founders was uh Witten, who won a field medal okay so very mathematical it's the most rigorous yeah it's a, the highest level of mathematics that you could imagine and so it's, this is not pseudoscientific in the sense of, uh, you know, the math isn't worked out or anything like that. And in principle, it, it should make predictions. Um, but I think the charges, if I remember correctly, the charges of pseudoscience, being pseudoscientific came about when they start. I, 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 I don't really remember all this, to be honest, but there, there was this thing where the, they had to, there was this kind of landscape model where it didn't, it looked like the theory was unfalsifiable, that if you falsified one, that they were, it, the thing is, string theory was, when it was originally posed, it was supposed to be unique in some sense. And then uh, it proved not to be. And so then you had this landscape of theories. And then if you now falsified one, there were all these others. Mm -hmm. And so they'd sort of, pop up like another like a like hydra's head or something. <laughs> exactly. uh, and so this led this this is what this is the feature that led people to start making this charge um, okay and so it ultimately i mean goes back to popper in that sense in that they might label it pseudoscientific because it appears unfalsifiable in the sense that it just keeps if you falsify one theory another one will will just pop up that's sort of a a riff on the initial uh, purportedly unique version. Yeah. Okay. No, that's uh, very interesting. And then I guess you could get, you know, quibble back and forth. I, I, so I don't really know what the state of that charge is. You know, uh, each one of those little Hydra heads have, you know, is falsifiable. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, is it really unfalsifiable or not? I don't know. And Yeah. As an, a complete outsider though, it seems like, a very worthwhile 
again, really stressing as a complete outsider. It seems like a very worthwhile uh, program. And if it ha if the general string theoretic apparatus or idea is um, quite promising and evidently lots of very highly qualified physicists uh, think it is, then by all means they should be trying to come up with new and more interesting uh, theories to account for anomalous anomalous phenomena. So you would want it to be sort of hydratic in this sense, hydrolytic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe. Uh, the, the charge I've heard that I, maybe I resonate a, a bit with is just really that it, uh, it's dominated the, the research landscape too much. Okay. So yeah. that there's all these other ideas in quantum gravity, but most of the funding was going to super string theory and most, most of the people in funding were going to super string theory. And so that the, um, yeah, that somehow that the, um, the, there was a sort of mismatch between resources and promise. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And the, the second sort of case that I wanted to talk a little bit more about is psychoanalysis, not just because it was clearly important to Popper's framing of this problem, but it's also just a, something that's still very much uh, talked about and lambasted as pseudoscience, but I don't, what, what does it mean to say that psychoanalysis isn't falsifiable if that is why uh, Popper was charging it as being pseudoscience? Yeah, I think, um, well, I, I am no expert on psychoanalysis at all. Uh, but, um, yeah, I think that there was this sort of, you know, this, the, this same kind of thing where it looked like, you know, there was no way you, you know, what would be a kind of falsification of the theory. Um, so, you know, you, um, but what, it's not clear, you know, so a lot of it is sort of, um, what would be the right word to use? Uh, it's, uh, you know, retrospective in a, you know, so you, you, you exhibit some kind of behavior and then now we're, we're told it's because you are, uh, have some sort of subconscious, uh, sexual desire for your mother. And now how would we, what prediction does that then make? What, how would we then falsify that in any way? It's very hard to see how you could do that. And, um, but I think it was even more than that. Uh, I'm thinking there was this great paper by uh, the philosopher of science, Clark Gleamore on Freud. And, you know, you could see this sort of, um, uh, all the sort of features of the scientific method like independence various features of independence between um uh hypothesis and and uh you know well independence between the freud and the subject and things like this they're they're all violated all the mm. time routinely and so you have you know kind of violation of the most standard features of scientific methodology again and again and again plus then you have this kind of unfalsifiable feature um so it doesn't look very promising uh, anyway, but I, I'm not really an expert. Yeah, yeah. No, that's totally fine. I I would like to have an expert on psychoanalysis to talk about just these sorts of things, because also from 
I think it's very fascinating from an historical perspective as well, because my understanding, and I could be totally wrong, was that Freud very much did think he was doing science and mm. considered himself to be a scientist. So it's interesting. I wonder how he would have defended that against the sort of claim that he's really violating the scientific method in his practice. Yeah. Um, no, all I know is, is really this wonderful paper by Clark Leemore, uh, which I okay. can recommend. Okay, great. And then the, the third case that I wanted to talk about uh, that we've already mentioned is astrology. So as you, as you pointed out, I think astrology, the predictions it makes, or it can be falsifiable. So if it can be falsifiable and falsifiability was Popper's criterion for demarcating science from pseudoscience, what do we want to say or how do we justify our belief, because I still have the belief that astrology is pseudoscience, is it maybe that even though it makes predictions and can be falsifiable, the predictions it makes have no plausible mechanism? They don't really explain anything. So they're just, they're sort of, sure, they're, they're predictions, but they're entirely unsubstantiated. Yeah, I think astrology, yeah, is, yeah, it's a, good case to think about because you know yeah it just it's just makes you know to the degree it makes predictions is just false um and then yeah as you point out then the mechanism is you know there's no independent reason to believe in any of the mechanism the mechanisms would be you know unbelievable news yeah. to science if if those yeah. mechanisms actually were were operating um and so it has all these uh, many, 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 many uh, sort of sins from the point of view of the scientific method. Now, apparently, you know, you, know, you can go and get, uh, talk to people who, you know, represent various astrological societies, and they will often say that the prediction problem is not really a problem, that, um, you know, those, predict those failed predictions you got were uh, done by, you know, a poor, a poor reading, a poor, <coughs> a, a poor understanding of astrology. And so, you know, all those sorts of, uh, things you get in the, um, uh, newspaper, you know, if they give you a, you know, a, some kind of uh, prediction, um, you know, they, they'll say, well, those were, you know, a, a good prediction is one that really takes into account, you know, many more astrological phenomena than what those things are doing. And so they shouldn't be blamed for, you know, poor uses of astrology. Hmm. Well, that's okay. But then still, even, even still, you know, the predictions themselves are, are clear, clearly, uh, you know, instances of the four effect in psychology, you know, hmm. where you want to, um, you're reading into it and you want to, uh, you want to make it true, you know, so they give you something that's so vague that, you will see truth in it for you, uh, but you know an right. independent, a neutral, independent observer wouldn't. Uh, and so they're taking it clearly. It's you know the to the extent that they have any success, it's it's clearly due to this kind of vagueness and um, psychological 
mechanism right. that we have. A charge that's often leveled on psychics too. Yeah, 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 exactly. Hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. So uh, I'm wondering, and this isn't something that I know you've taught about, so I wonder if it's something that you know about, but have you ever heard of Randall Carlson and Graham Hancock? And in particular, I'm thinking about this new show they have uh, called Ancient Apocalypse on Netflix. No. No? Okay. Well, what I recall is that they argue basically that there used to be highly advanced human civilizations uh, that were wiped out by a comet, and that many ruins like the pyramids, for example, uh, were built many, many thousands of years earlier than the authorities uh, tell us they were, this sort mm -hmm. of thing. Uh, you, so you haven't heard this particular uh, theory? No, but I know, you know this is, you're, talking, you're speaking to another phenomenon, which is these kind of pseudo-histories. Yeah. Which yeah, is fantastic. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, there's all these pseudo-histories, and usually they're, you know, you, well, I wonder why they put them, well, I guess maybe they're putting them forth just for ratings or something like this, or, uh, but. Why, what, who's putting them forth? Uh, the people you're talking about. Oh, these two or people? they're well, just examining I know them, or. They've, they classify themselves as scholars. Like, I, I, I think, let's see, I'm going to look up Randall Carlson because he has a very interesting uh, description of what his profession is. Um, but some of these pseudo histories are fantastic. You know, I mean, they're bad, uh, but you, and usually they're used for terrible reasons. But, you know, so there's all these pseudo histories of Atlantis, where yes. Atlantis was and um, why it was. And, you know, the, the a lot of these things, uh, and of course the, the Nazis used a pseudo history, pseudo scientific history, uh, to, sort of give a kind of narrative to their, you know, evil mission. Um, there were pseudo histories of where Jesus was in the, was in America, was in North America. And, you know, so you have all these kind of uh, weird stories that uh, are used to sort of, you know, uh, support all sorts of, you know, strange, often not so nice uh, beliefs in that about the world. Mm -hmm. What I So Randall Carlson is a geologist and master builder who specializes in sacred geometry, which that, that raises some flags for me, uh, archaeology, astronomy, and uh, mythology. But mm. this raises to me an a serious epistemic question about how you select your expert advice when you're not yourself an expert in the subject matter. So if you listen to a podcast with somebody like this and they use a lot of big words, they, and they seem like they know a lot. They're very confident and well-spoken and they tell you, well, look, if you look at the pyramids, they display these erosion patterns that could only be explained by rainfall in the Nile Delta 12,000 years ago, which is X thousand years before the, the pyramids were supposed to have been built. And the reason the experts won't admit this is that all of those people at Oxford, Harvard, Yale, 
they've been staking their whole careers on this theory and perpetuating it that the pyramids were only built two or three thousand years ago but i've got the real information and they and you want to believe this because it's exciting uh and you feel like you're getting this like secret clandestine information how do you sort of combat this or when you when you're not educated in the subject matter yourself yeah it's a huge issue uh yeah and like you said you know how do you pick experts you know if especially if you're not yourself an expert so you know if you were an expert maybe you could pick experts or recognize fellow experts but you're not and so how do you do this huge huge issue and um yeah if you think of what you believe you know and you think certain things that seem crazy certain things don't but you know you haven't done the experiments you haven't studied the science you haven't you know you're just sitting there in front of your computer how the heck do you know uh mm -hmm. so you so you, somehow you do or do to some extent or we think we do to some extent how does this happen um and well maybe i could try to answer a little bit by i so i don't have a worked out answer exactly but yeah okay. um if i go off on a kind of tangent a little bit I think the you know what and this is something we do in the course. Um, you know, the, I think it's important to see that you you could be fooled. You know, so we all you know we philosophers, academics, we all think we're also smart, um, but you know we can be fooled. And so I, I think I use this. Uh, it's a great experiment. It was done at Stanford, where I think it was in the education department, and they pitted. They had a contest to look at, you know, websites and were the websites done by misinformation artists, uh, you know, who often had a kind of evil agenda or were they legit? And so what they did was they had uh, a competition between, you know, uh, professors and PhD students, uh, I think in various fields versus fact, professional fact checkers for like journalists, for, for newspapers and that. And so what you would do, you would give in two websites and two articles and you'd have to read them and then see, see which one you thought was the, the bullshit and which one you thought was not. The fact checkers completely obliterated the faculty and PhD students in this right. competition. They described the faculty and, and PhD students as uh, vertical thinkers. So we would look at the website and we would scroll and read. And we would think that it would be like a, in poker where there's a tell. And so we would be able to tell, you know, that we would see some sign of the pseudoscientific features of this website. Um, the fact checkers were horizontal thinkers. They didn't even look at the website. They just Googled the website name and then <laughs> they tried to connect it to other things. And so I did this myself. I, I, you know, they have these free samples you can do. That's cool. And so I looked at the, it was two pediatrician uh, societies, their websites, and then two articles that were both posted on the websites, each, each on bullying. Now, you know, if I'm going to be honest, you know, on a quick skim, the kind of effort level you would give when you're just reading a website, you know, to me, they look the same. I, I couldn't tell. One was 
actually by a, uh, a group that the Southern Poverty Center labels a hate group. And it was this uh, uh, anti-gay agenda that was behind all of it. And they had various little things in the bullying article that, um, you know, when you then learned about it and then went back and read the article, you could then see signs of this. But, you know, on a quick skim, they both, they both look professional. If you've got money, you can make a nice website. Um, and, yeah, so the what? So now I'm getting back to the answer your question. So what, what, what do the fact checkers do in terms of, you know, they didn't even look at the, the content of the website. They looked for associations with what they would think, what you might call sort of known trust networks. You know, so when the New York Times quotes somebody, a pediatrician, is a pediatrician who's speaking for the hate group one <laughs> or the other one? Yeah. Uh, you know, Wall Street Journal, uh, all these other sorts of things. And so they would look, build these kind of trust networks. And so there were certain institutions that they had already trusted. Um, but it doesn't have to be institutions. It could even be just people, right? So maybe, you know, you... Um, uh, you know, another a fellow philosopher you think it you know always has good arguments and good evidence for their views on things you don't know, and so now you trust them on some new thing, and so they you sort of build this kind of trust network. Um, now, of course, the whole tra- trust network could be wrong, right? And so you see, of course, many people and groups go down these kind of rabbit holes where your trust network is now not you know, not trustworthy. Um, when I'm teaching this class, by the way, you know, you could see this happen. So I, I'll try to, I'll, I'll be studying all the kind of latest and greatest pseudoscience and misinformation. And so I'll be, you know, spending a lot of time on YouTube. And then you can watch through, as I'm teaching the course through the quarter, you can look at the, the right-hand side, you know, what the YouTube algorithm is suggesting for me. And it gets more and more nuts you know, as the quarter goes along, because I'm getting, I'm going, you know, it's, it's sending me deeper and deeper into this rabbit hole of a different trust network, but, you know, a, a, a very bad one. Um, how do, how could we, you know, the philosopher want to know, of course, how can we know we're in the good one versus the bad mm-hmm. one, which, you know, there you, you do have to you know, go back to some some of the f- criteria that you associate with good science, you know, not, not false, not fixate so much on falsification, but you know, uh, you have a bunch of different, many, 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 many criteria that you associate with good sound science or, or knowledge. And, uh, you know, if it's, if your trust network is, a- is asking you to strain that so much, um, so I don't know if you watched that documentary on um, flat Earth theory. I, I was going to ask you if you'd watched it. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. I don't know if we're talking about the same one, but we probably are. I, I don't know if it was on it Amazon. Followed, uh, if I remember, it followed uh, a conference in Denver uh, of flat Earth theory. Um, uh, well, they... I don't know if it's the same one. This was this would have been a few years ago. But what did you have to say about it in particular? Yeah, it's. it's... Well, it's really interesting, but I mean, if you really think about the flat earth theory, I mean, everything is wrong. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. Everything, just yeah. everything. Um, and it's it's very interesting because, 
you know, the, all that, ev- you know, the, it's so, you know, everything you believe is so wrong that then, you know, what counts as evidence of the alternative view ends up counting as evidence of the cover-up. You know, so they'll say things like, well, why do all the elementary schools all have globes in them? You know, it's the, <laughs> it's the globalists. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's like evidence of the conspiracy because, of course, if you're a, a globalist, you would you would want to instill this thought in the in the in the children from a young age and yeah. so One. you know everything gets what, what what is evidence and what is not uh, what is evidence for what gets you know just completely uh inverted yeah one of the funny things that i recall about the the documentary or film that i saw and I'm probably getting some of the details wrong, but there was somebody in their cohort whose name was Lucia or something like this. And they, they realized they were, they put this together. Wait, her name is Lucia. That's CIA are the last three letters. And they like maybe became suspicious that she was a spy or something like that. And they were being given a, it was like a hint or, mm-hmm. or something like that. Hmm. Yeah. The one I remember was, uh, you know, at the end it had the, where they did the kind of crucial experiment with light, mm-hmm. And then they, you know, it doesn't go their way. <laughs> yeah. If you look at interviews with the person who did that, uh, the, the, you know, afterwards, after that, they thought the show was great. And they, you know, this, of course, did not change their mind at all. Mm-hmm. Um, which, again, shows that their falsifica- falsification is not really a great criterion anyway. Um I, uh, you know, so they could point, but I, I meant to mention before about the falsification. I think the first, uh, you know, so people talk about dark matter being a, you know, being necessary to explain various cosmological observations. Right. And I think the first signs of general relativity requiring, you know, being at odds with experiments, with, with some observations in cosmology was as early as, I could be wrong with the exact date, but I think it was like 1927 when they started seeing things like the, um, the, the arms of elliptical galaxies go a little bit faster or, or that than they should. And, um, I forget if that was the exact observation, but you know, no one, it wouldn't have been rational to ditch general relativity just because of that, because your observations weren't so solid. You had all this chain of inferences between your observation and, that so you know and the theory was working so well otherwise you know mm-hmm. it wouldn't really have been uh, a great uh, uh it wouldn't you know if you just ditched general relativity right right with one little falsification it's i think of drug trials and stuff like that you know they'll have like you know 12 of 20 trials show an effect not mm-hmm. not all of them and so in some sense there's falsification all the time but not necessarily, that's not uh, ultimately damning usually. Um, so the astrologists, yeah, they were not affected by the crucial experiment in the way uh, you would think, and they thought it was great because it brought more people to them. Mm. They're connected to what we've just been talking about. I saw that there's a whole week in your course on this subject on why clever people believe stupid things. And when I saw that, it reminded me of some, something. Uh, so C.T. Wynn, a professor at University of Utah, he was 
visiting Stanford and I went out to dinner with him. And when he was here, he, this might've actually been in his colloquium, but he pointed out that while we tend to think of conspiracy theorists as thinking too little, they're in fact thinking way too much. Uh, I mean, like my, uh, what I pointed out with this Lucia example, it's like they're seeing things everywhere. And, and like the, I mean, the stereotypical or caricature of a conspiracy theorist is the person who has like this cork board with all sorts of things pinned on and strings tying them together. Does this at all connect with why clever people believe stupid things? I mean, is it like if you're clever, you you think too highly of your own uh, intellect and you just overthink things into absurdity or how did you tackle that <laughs> in the course? Uh, yeah, I think that section of the course is mostly focused on all these kind of psychological biases we, we have, cognitive biases. You know, so we love selection bias and um, all sorts of things like that, confirmation bias. And, but, you know, but to connect with your point, I, th I, I think that is right that, you know, so we're pattern detectors and we're looking around for patterns. And then now if you have... Um, you know, you're motivated in some way to find particular things. If, if you're really clever, you'll, you'll be able to find patterns that other people won't find. Um, and then if you have this kind of motivated reasoning or selection bias and, and that, that you, you will find these kind of patterns. Hmm. And, and the, uh, the smarter you are, the, and the harder you work at it, the more such patterns you might find. <laughs> Yeah. And then I guess one of the last things I, I'll have to say about the conspiracy theorists, for the moment at least, is it seems like if somebody believes in one conspiracy theory, they're going to believe in like a hundred of them. It, it seems to be an all or nothing sort of. So I used to work out at this gym in Austin that was, for whatever reason, a big mecca for conspiracy theorists. And I enjoyed this a lot because I would spend a lot of time in the sauna and that's where people are just talking and there was tons of conspiracy theory talk. And I, I, I guess some people may, I guess you're not one of these people, but you enjoy listening to people talk about conspiracy theories. I really do. I would love to have people on this podcast talk to me about conspiracy theories, not because I'd want to disprove them, but because I just like listening to the reasoning and it's i don't know they're fun stories but anyway it starts out with flat earth and then it suddenly becomes the moon isn't real or we we never got to the moon and one of the particularly one of the examples or conspiracy theories or no it was a justification for a conspiracy theory they were explaining to me that we could not have gotten to the moon because of the Van Allen radiation belts. The Van Allen radiation belts would have vaporized any astronauts. And what I found so funny about this is that they, their extremely anti-scientific conspiracy theory was substantiated by uh, advanced, mm -hmm. uh, for, <laughs> what, for all intents and purposes, advanced science that I don't understand. I. Well, I don't know anything about the Van Allen radiation belts, but it certainly certainly sounds convincing uh, yeah, at a yeah. very superficial level. No, I, yeah, I think you're right. That I mean, when, when you, the more preposterous the 
belief, the more other beliefs, you know, if we think of this in a kind of Quinean web of belief type of picture, you know, if we're going to really sort of, um, you know, so, you know, the Quine do him picture is that, you know, you could hold on to any belief come what may, no matter what observations you have by just making further adjustments in your web of belief. And, you know, so now for me to, you know, so I, I, you know, so now I, so I believe that in the March Madness college basketball tournament right now that all four number one seeds uh, lost. Uh, well, I watched that on TV and, you know, I, I believe all of that. It's improbable. So, so I had to, you know, bend the net a little bit to believe that all four of them would lose. But, you know, it's not that much of a bend, but flat earth theory, you know, almost everything gets, has to be, all those webs all need to be uh, rewritten. Those rewritings end up requiring further rewritings. It's it's uh, really quite a, um, I'm trying to think that I just had the thought that, so yeah, so in there is some work in psychology. I don't know it, but I'll just mention it so that you or other listeners could, yeah, please, could, please. could look at it. I mean, they do have these studies on gullibility. So what I'm wondering is, you know, so how, you know, so, so when you say the what people you meet who are conspiracy theories, they have more than one, you know, a bunch. So one one thought would just be, what I was just saying, well, what, you know, one conspiracy theory sort of demands another because, you know, they, you're, you're adjusting your web of belief in dramatic ways. But another sort of theory would be, you know, well, some people are just more gullible than others. You know, it's a more kind of personality trait. Uh, of course, they could both be, both things could be true too. Uh, so if you take somebody who, be interesting to see, you know, so if you took somebody who believed in unrelated, you know, take two unrelated pseudoscientific theories, you know, so maybe you believe crystals are, will give you some kind of healing ener energy. Uh, uh -huh. That doesn't mean you have to believe in Bigfoot. Uh, but, you know, are the Bigfoot believers more, more likely to believe in the crystals and vice versa? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it could be a very, you know, various things going on. It could be psychological. It could be partly educational, partly. Yeah. Uh, I, I interviewed uh, Tanya Lombroso, who is a cognitive scientist and psychologist at Princeton. And I think her lab is called the Concepts and Cognition Lab. It might be Cognition and Con Concepts and Cognition sounds better. So it's probably that one. But mm. she does a lot of work. Uh, philosophical work, um, cognitive scientific work, um, psycho psychological work on explanation. And something that I didn't talk to her that I now wish I had, though there are, will be many more opportunities to talk to other psychologists, is I wish I'd asked her more about gullibility. Uh, because gullibility, I don't really know what the cognitive or psychological basis is for it. But that would certainly be interesting to discuss. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now I want to go and look at that stuff. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Now, leaving conspiracy theories 
for the moment. You're first and foremost, I think, and you can correct me if you see yourself differently. Actually, you, you described yourself as a philosopher of science, but I was going to say you're first and foremost a philosopher of physics. Do you not, do you see it one way or the other? Uh, well, I think early in my career, I saw myself as a philosopher of physics, uh, but now I've been branching out and doing more and more stuff. Uh, and so, you know, now I definitely think of myself as a philosopher of science first and foremost, and then who does philosophy, one, who, one, one thing I do is then philosophy of physics. Uh, so for instance, I've got a paper out on coming out next month, I think, on, um, personality tests in employment contexts. So you're, there's all these, you know, you, you apply for a job at CVS or Walmart or somewhere and allegedly like 80% of them, of the fortune 200 companies use psychology tests and, uh, you know, this weeds people out. Are those psychology, uh, are those personality tests scientific or not? Mm -hmm. Are they, I think some of them are definitely pseudoscientific, you know, and so, yeah, so this is an example of, yeah, so where my work is, that's definitely not philosophy of physics. Yeah, I, I was actually going to go, though, into some some physics questions, but now that you bring up the personality test. We can go into uh, physics, too. Uh, we yeah, can even yeah, talk yeah. physics and pseudoscience. Yeah, yeah, that's where I was going, but yeah. now, I mean let's talk about the personality test for a minute. This is just a funny story. I think is a friend and I uh, many years ago, we were both applying to sort of lower level jobs at Vail, the, the ski resort. I think we were going to be cooks mm -hmm. and we had to take these personality tests and I was the one responsible for manning like the email portal with our results. And when we got them in, I told my friend that he hadn't been hired cause he'd failed the personality test. Uh, but of course, he passed it, but it was it was just a funny moment. But um, are personality tests? It, you use the word pseudoscience. Are they all pseudoscience, or is there real research being done in this area? Yeah, both. Uh, so there's different sort. Well, there's really hundreds of personality tests, uh, but I think I think of them as sort of grouped into basically three. Uh, you've got the kind of Myers-Briggs type uh, where you get a kind of, you know, you're an introvert, uh, some, you know, you get the four letters, I forget what they are. Uh, and that's been around, you know, from the dawn of psychology. And that, I think, does have the predictive value of an astrology, you know, astrology reading or horoscope, or it's not really much better than those kind of internet tests to find out what house you, what Harry Potter house <laughs> you would belong to. But aren't those fun? Yeah, those are fun. And, you know, the, as far as I know, there's no predictive value linking your personality type from that type of test to anything meaningful in job performance. And so those are not so good. And then there's the Minnesota one, which is developed in a clinical context. Um, and that also is, is, I mean, that's been updated, but it's very old and it's not typically used in the work context. And then there's the, the more scientific ones called the big five or, or five factor models. And those are, 
you know, an active area of research in, in psychology. Okay. And, but whether the test you take though for a particular job is, you know, it might be inspired by the big five, but it might also be just some vendors, you know, their own questionnaire that's kind of based on that. And so that might not be that scientific at all. Um, and then the big question, of course, is whether the there's much of a link to job performance at all. Um, and so it's a little bit weird because if you have, uh, you know, because of the American Disabilities Act in the U.S., you have, you know, if an employer wants to use this as a pre-employment selection device or, or within the job, you know, whether you get promoted or not, um, you will, um, if, if it turns out that the test is actually very scientific and would reveal, say, a mental disability, uh, then it could be, uh, then, then the um, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission would, would, would view it as a kind of medical test asking you to disclose something you, you don't have to disclose. And so oddly, you then have this kind of weird reverse in, you know, incentive to, admit, to give less scientific tests. It's like if you if the employers gave tests where they actually were administered by psychologists and interpreted by psychologists, then it would be might be viewed as a kind of medical test and, and might actually end up meaning something. And so then they have to flee from that because otherwise because then they're asking to disclose what they can't ask to disclose. And so you you know, so in some sense it's better for them to use the kind of Harry Potter type test because then they they're you know, that's no one will accuse that of being scientific or medical. Hmm. And so you have this weird incentive structure where the less scientific type tests yeah. are being incentivized for use. But then you know that they don't, you know, measure that much with respect to job performance. Hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so I've got this paper with uh, Jada Wiggleton uh, Little coming out where we look at the effect of this on screening out the neurodiverse. Is huh. uh, neurodiverse have a massive unemployment problem? Right, uh, they have worse unemployment than ex-cons, and you know these tests basically target the neurodiverse, and so they get screened out before you know in, in ways that are not obviously related to job performance. So uh, ex-cons, I it's quite easy to give necessary and sufficient conditions for an ex-con, but what? How do you define somebody who's neurodiverse to sort of come up with these statistics? Yeah, I just look at different studies that look at, uh, you know, uh, well, there's definitely, you know, there are all these studies that look at associations between uh, your performance on, so there are these kind of diagnostic tests that, 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 that these tests are not used for the for the diagnosis of being autistic, but they're, they're part of it. And so you can look at associations between those tests and performance on different personality tests and find strong associations in certain areas. Are high-functioning individuals with autism then, the, are those the neurodiverse people you're referring to? Or are there other, other yeah. conditions? Uh, I think we do have some information on other conditions, but mo mostly it's autism. Hmm. And then, yeah, the unemployment is really high, even among um, 
you know, college graduates. Um, hmm. So it's a uh, uh, college graduate neurodiverse individual. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so you can look at these personality tests and the, actually there's a documentary about, what is it called? The dark, dark side of something. It looks at these personality tests. They were, they were almost outlawed and there was, there were hearings in the 1960s in the, in Congress, uh, on personality tests. Um, and they've always been controversial. And so they were, I think there were something like 25 or 30 senators prepared to vote to make their use illegal uh, for any federal job uh, in the 60s. Um, you know, so if you think of this as a whole other area of pseudoscience, you know, where you have, you know, like lie detectors, Rorschach tests, and the use of all of these things. And it's, it's really just terrible that a lot of these things are used in these kind of legal settings and people's lives are being, you know, affected by their performance on some of these tests that we know are really not very good. Right. It's interesting that the, the employers who presumably have access to the science that would tell them that these sorts of tests are not scientifically accurate would still administer them, even knowing this. Yeah. And they, yeah, they do get sued often because sometimes these tests are, are, they're often biased. Uh, so that there's two sorts of things going on even before the, if you don't think of consider the neurodiversity angle. So like when the, when Congress was looking at it in the sixties, they were mostly worried about privacy. So the personality test back then would, you know, ask you personal questions about, you know, whether you sometimes had, you know, sexual thoughts about people of, of your, of your, of your same sex and all sorts of other oh, things. Gosh. And, you know, you could get, you could lose a job or not get a job because of that. Also, you know, um, it just ask weird, really, really personal questions, uh, also religious questions and all sorts of things that, you know, now you would not be allowed to ask. Yeah. Um, and clearly have no bearing whatsoever on your ability to work. Yeah. But then also that, you know, you have this kind of general issue of bias, you know, so like the Minnesota test was very famous for this, where they, you know, so they give you all these questions, you know, so like let's say, you know, Robinson, you know, have you ever considered, you know, the question might be, you know, I forget one of, one of them was something like, uh, I have considered where I've, I've considered a life of working as a librarian and you put yes or no. Uh, on the surface, I don't really know what you know which is like the right answer or the wrong answer for that. Yeah. And so, how do you tell which is right or wrong? Well, they you know famously they took the what are called the the Minnesota, Minnesota normals, and so there were two thousand people who administered this test. They're mostly rural farmers. You know, Minnesota. It was all done in Minnesota, and so if you answered, you know, con, you know, so they defined what was normative. For, really? for the test. Huh. And so if you, you know, took the test in say the late seventies and you disagreed with, you know, what most Minnesota white, <laughs> white, uh, you know, educated to whatever level, uh, Minnesota, rural Minnesota farmers from the thirties or forties, then, you know, 
you've got a deviant personality. And, wow. You know, so you always have this kind of question of how you measure like what is normal. And so now you have to grab, you know, they have to grab ever more representative samples. Wow. And so then in the eighties, they updated it, but already that's out of date, you know, because yeah. the 80s were a long time ago and the racial, uh, uh, makeup of the country has changed uh, quite a lot uh, f from there. So anyway, yeah, yeah, you've always got these questions of sort of privacy and bias. Uh, they're, they're all coming up in a big way now because now, what's going on is the employer. You know, if you think about it from their point of view, you know, so you're Walmart or CVS or Rite Aid or something. You, you know, before when you would advertise a job, you know, it, you know, people would actually physically come to the store, fill out a application and hand it in. Now it's on the web. They're getting flooded with thousands of, of applications. And so they need some sort of way, you know, what they really want is some sort of algorithm that will sift through these in some way. Uh, but then of course, and so they, they'll latch onto personality tests, but they might use other algorithms. You know, there are vendors now moving into using videos. So you upload a video like it would like a video of my face, like right now and read my personality from it in some way with some algorithm. And then that would be the screening for whether I go to the next stage on the job process. So it's, yeah, it's a, um, big issue. Hmm. Well, now we can turn to the physics. Yeah. <laughs> and so when I was talking to, <laughs> I, I mentioned Tanya Lombroso of, of Princeton, a lot of our conversation was about the intuitions general people have in general about what makes a good or a satisfying explanation or answer to a question. And not surprisingly, one of the things people will select for or believe to be a good explanation is one that uses a lot of jargon in a somewhat, well, if it's used in a context where it seems appropriate for one and presumably if the person is well-spoken and seems confident, we will prefer an explanation that uses jargon to one that doesn't. We'll, we'll find it more satisfying. And the reason that I think this relates to physics is terminology from quantum uh, physics, uh, I think quantum mumbo jumbo is what you refer to it as, mm -hmm. is used and abused all over the place. And it drives me nuts, and I don't even understand the real stuff very well. But how do you feel about it, or how do you explain it? Or when you see somebody reference, like, well, maybe Ant-Man and quantum mania doesn't bother you too much, but in other areas it might be more uh, pernicious. Yeah, this is a great topic. Uh, I keep meaning to write a paper about this. I, I gave a talk to the San Diego Skeptic Society called Quantum Mumbo Jumbo, hmm. And I, I claimed that quantum mechanics was the universal bullshit attractor. <laughs> uh, so that nothing, nothing, I mean, quantum mechanics is just the most perfect thing ever for pseudoscience. Um, you know, so that is take some, take some pseudoscience, Google it with the word quantum. I guarantee you there's a product or a book or some sort of thing, anything there is, there's quantum Bigfoot. No way. Yeah, there's really? it's a there's a in fact it's a <laughs> there's a series of books about quantum Bigfoot. Um, why why do you think why why do you think Bigfoot isn't seen so much? Quantum tunneling. 
you know, of course, uh, naturally, uh, naturally. There's so many lakes. Uh, of course, quantum mechanics, and uh, while you were interested in pyramids, uh, you know, if you Google quantum and pyramids, you're going to find a ton. Really, the only thing I haven't found really is quantum mechanics and uh, Loch Ness monster. Wait, wait, why do quantum and pyramids go together? Uh, well, it could be the holism, uh, some kind of depends on your pyramid theory. You know, if you if you've got this kind of picture of the aliens from super advanced aliens using aliens, quantum right. technologies were able to do this uh the the pyramid itself may be entangled with other pyramids and other worlds or there, there's all sorts of stuff there's no shortage of stuff on pier uh, i couldn't find anything on Loch Ness monster but 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 there is a kind of nasty side to all of this so you can find all these kind of um you know, medical devices that you could buy on Amazon and, you know, using, uh, allegedly using various features of quantum mechanics and people buy them. I mean, thousands of dollars and people who, you know, with no health insurance who are desperate because they're, you know, really sick are spending their, you know, the little money they have on these devices that, you know, are apparently using quantum mechanics uh, to heal them in some way. Now the whole the big now if we step if we zoom like way out and you look at the history of pseudoscience, you can find I mean this is a a kind of common thing is you you of course use the label that will convey legitimacy and make it feel you know um, um, like there's some kind of special you know new scientific angle. So you look at early pseudoscience in the late 1800s, everything was electro. Electro this, electro that, power of magnetism, electro pills, electro, you know, you name it. Huh. it. That even continues. You know, I was saying to my class, I was, you know, I've, I've played basketball for 40 years. So, of course, my knees are shot while well, I'm still yeah. playing and my knees are always hurting. So I go to, you know, CVS and, you know, most of those aisles are just filled with scientific things. All I want is a knee wrap that holds ice. And... <laughs> You know, you get the knee wrap with that allegedly is, you know, and it's got the power of, you know, it's got magnetic strips to hold it. And then it claims, you know, some sort of thing about the power of magnetism that's going to heal my knee. You know, I just want the knee to be cold <laughs> with with ice and still, mm -hmm. still you have this kind of, and so you can look at, uh, I also thought it'd be interesting to write a paper on this, looking at the kind of history of, you know, these different terms and where they get used, because I bet I haven't looked yet, but I bet. So think of the original, the original Iron Man. So think of the Iron Man movies now. Iron Man's got some kind of, what is it, like a fusion reactor or something like that. Something, something like this. Uh, so that's like the latest and greatest in contemporary fusion. Yeah, science. Uh -huh. And so I think the original Iron Man was very old, and I I, I believe he had the power of transistors. In his heart. It was all about, so those comic books from around that time were all obsessed with transistors. Uh, and, you know, they were, I mean, then like the most simple electrical component you can imagine. Yeah. But it was a big deal then. Uh -huh. And so I bet there was all this pseudoscience, you know, that was sort of, you know, manipulating the power of transistors to do various things for you. Um, anyway, yeah, so it's uh, so quantum mechanics, you could find everything and anything 
linked to pseudoscience. But in oh, the other point I was going to make, but you can go ahead. But, no, no, please. Yeah, the other point I was going to make is, and this is a point Adam Becker in his book, uh, What is Real, makes. To a large extent, the physicists brought this on themselves. You know, so if you think about all the kind of quantum mysticism that Bohr would would say, um, and all of these different, you know, famous people from the history of quantum mechanics, were all pushing this kind of mystical, new agey sort of picture from quantum mechanics. And so, to a large extent, you can then see that you know they invited this misappropriation hmm. Hmm. interesting and something that you said did you call quantum physics the ultimate pseudoscience attractor or bullshit attractor i don't remember i think i said bullshit okay yeah. so what what about quantum is it just that quantum physics is the latest and greatest or is there something about quantum physics i that makes it the ultimate bullshit attractor because to, from where I stand again, as an outsider, I mean, it's relationship, at least in the zeitgeist stemming from like the Copenhagen interpretation, uh, this idea of spookiness, spooky action at a distance, randomness, all of these things really contribute to people's ability to manipulate it for their own purposes just because we already have this sort of what the heck is it attitude toward it in the zeitgeist yeah i yeah i think so i think it's it's got it all going for it yeah so it is the latest and greatest and so it conveys legitimacy that way but then it is truly weird you know you do have all these effects that are real that are truly strange and so it gives the pseudoscientific it gives the pseudoscientist more, th more things to work with, uh, because you can get a little bit closer to the truth by exploiting some of these features, or or mis misinterpreting them, but not so much. You know, mm -hmm. so, um, yeah. You know, so like, e even you know, even if you're not a pseudoscientist, I mean, so, I think in the '80s, the Department of Defense gave. Uh, somebody a, a grant for making, you know, the, like the ultimate super weapon by exploiting quantum, not, quantum locality to make a weapon that would go faster than the speed of light. Huh. And, you know, so that, that fooled even reviewers for, you know, so they were misinterpreting the bell, bell non-locality. Non you know, you cannot super luminally signal with the bell non-locality, but you know, there are, there's these non-local there is this non-locality and so you know you can't expect non-experts to then think that the non-locality so the non-locality is real it's natural to then think you could exploit it in some way maybe maybe it's why you know how a, how psychics work or it's how you know uh all these different patterns that seem unrelated are maybe related through some sort of entanglement and so it gives you a little you know, so it's better than the old, the old, latest and greatest because you know electric electricity and magnetism, well, they're spooky too because you don't see them, you know, but that's all you get. You know, you don't have this kind of um, with quantum mechanics. You don't have that. Plus, you don't have 
all the physicists themselves saying things like, you know, reality doesn't exist until you observe it and all that, all that kind of thing. Hmm. Something uh, else, a, a dimension of this that I don't think we've touched on really is that the abuse though, I'm again, speaking out of my ken here of quantum theory isn't limited to the Bigfoot theorists and the pyramid theorists, but I think even Sir Roger Penrose has, who has a Nobel Prize in physics, I think, has written about like quantum nanotubules or something like that being the key to understanding human consciousness. And I don't know anything about this, but I've also read from philosophers that this is sort of nonsensical and a non-starter. Are you at all familiar with this? Today? Yeah, I'm, not, I'm, I'm no expert in neuroscience, but you know, uh, I would, uh, my, my supervisor would always say that neurons were more like trucks than electrons. And, you know, so that in the sense that they're mechanical. Yeah. And, okay. And, yeah, so I think what you're pointing at is you, you definitely see this kind of tendency of, you know, kind of mystery unification. So consciousness is a mystery, you know, quantum mechanics is a mystery, measurement problem, a mystery. And so maybe we can sort of unify all these different mysteries in, in some way. And so you do see this again and again. And, I mean, maybe it is a kind of natural scientific impulse to try to, I mean, that is what you try to do, right? You try to sort of unify mysteries or, you know, reduce the number of mysteries. And uh, so I think Penrose is probably doing that to some extent. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, it seems really kind of hard to believe. Mm -hmm. Now, going back to some of the, the broader concerns that we started our conversation with, does pseudoscience have anything to do with replicability or does replicability have anything to do with pseudoscience? Because I mean, bad science as the replication crisis shows isn't replicable either. And there, there is a funny paper you cited um, by Smith and Pell called parachute use to prevent death and major trauma related to gravitational challenge, <laughs> uh, systematic review of randomized control trials. Does, all of this uh, go together? Is it is it relevant to pseudoscience? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, again, I don't know whether we can make a clean distinction between bad science and pseudoscience, um, mm -hmm. but um, but that yeah, that paper and uh, yeah, I well, first of all, I love these kind of like joke papers that get published sometimes in good journals, mm -hmm. often on April Fool's Day. Um, what and, what is this one? What, what journal is this? No, not the or, journal, but uh, what's the, the, the message of the paper? Yeah, so this one is, you know, so there's this kind of fetishization, you know, that my colleague uh, Nancy Cartwright has made a, you know, talked a lot about of, of randomized control trials. And so you think of those as the gold standard. Or, um, or sometimes or my uh, our former student is a professor at uh, Cambridge, uh, Jacob Stagenga, talks about the meta-analysis as the platinum standard. 
And so you can, anyway, if you think of that, if you think of randomized control trial as the you know, gold standard, you might not think then that uh, parachutes uh, work because there, you know, there haven't really been any randomized control trials where they dropped people out of airplanes with and without parachutes. And, you know, and <laughs> yeah. as the article points out, some people who have fallen out of airplanes without parachutes or parachute malfunctions, you know, actually ended up living. And yeah. so crazy. Uh, yeah, which is nuts. Um, and so, you know, it seems like a pretty good belief, you know, thinking that a parachute works and yet there's no, just a, an appalling lack of randomized control trials on this. Um, and, you know, it turns out you could also sort of tune randomized control trials in various ways, you know, so you're looking to see whether, um, whether some medication uh, works and, you know, what maybe you're concerned about maybe side effects of memory loss. And then you disregard from the studies, the people who forget to come to the, the, the follow-up meeting and, you know, so you end up tuning the trial in various ways like that. Hmm. Um, anyway, and you can also tune meta-analyses too in various ways. And so, the, yeah, that part of the thing was looking at um, ways you could sort of tune a randomized control trial, which seems like the gold standard, and also what reasons for thinking that you could have a good solid belief in something, even if you, even if you lack randomized control trials. Well, uh, another sort of big picture idea is the conflation between causation and correlation. And in your course, I think you teach this in relation to nutritionism. Mm -hmm. What is nutritionism and how does it relate to this distinction between correlation and causation? Yeah, so you've got all these nutrition uh Articles that you, if you read, you know, like the New York Times, you'll find, you know, you know, on the Science Tuesday, there'll be some little paragraph pointing out that some latest study that if you eat such and such type of berry, uh, then you know you'll live an extra five years or something like this. And then you go and look at the article, and you'll see an association, and the association was with like eight people, all male, in Finland. And, mm. you, know, you know, now you have this kind of generalization. Yeah, and so I do this great, uh, I, I think it's a great assignment, uh, uh, which I get from, uh, if you look at my syllabus, you can see where I get it, uh, but it's called correlation or causation. And I have the students look at the, um, you know, the media uh, write-up, and I ask them, you know, does this say causation or, co or correlation? Almost always it's causation you know the journalist is trying to hype it up and so make, by making it causal it then um you know it looks better and then we can look and then i have them click on a, on a link and then look at the actual science what do the scientists say sometimes they lapse into correlate causal even though they only have associational sometimes they don't and so that and then we look at the you know have them look at the actual um yeah, you know, so they could look at like the abstract and then have them actually look at the paper. And so you can see something that's often associational, you know, and also where you could often, you know, what's the fun cases are ones where you can come up with like a million other more plausible causal stories for why the association exists than what was presented in the 
in the newspaper or, or magazine. Um, yeah, and so that the students can then look and see, you know, where where this go, uh, you know, where where this go associational to causal, or maybe it is causal, you know, uh, and so they have to sort of test this out. Hmm. And I, you don't need to. I don't expect you to have a, a spe- specific examples here, but maybe you could make one up just for my my listeners who don't really know the difference between correlation and causation in, let's say, a, a nutrition study. How we yeah. might look at um, that. Well, let me switch the study. I can think of a, an actual one. Playing video games helps you become a surgeon. Okay. And so they'll find a association between, you know, the ability to be good in a video game and being a surgeon. And so then the uh, suggestion is that, you know, if you want to become a surgeon, you should start playing video games. And Um, finding an association, though, just means that they find that more surgeons are good at video games than aren't or something like that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, sorry. Thanks. Uh, yeah, and so uh, so you find this statistical correlation between these two groups. Um, now, you know, is it really a case that playing video games helps you become a surgeon? Or is it just that, you know, can you think of other reasons why there might be this association? Well, maybe coordination. Maybe people who are coordinated are, are better at both. Uh, so you can just think of, you know, many types of... Uh, common cause that would explain the correlation that so you don't have a causal arrow going from video games to Mm -hmm. i mean maybe there is a causal thing i don't know yeah now maybe in practice we it would be totally not feasible to run the sort of experiment that would show a causal connection between playing video games and being a surgeon but how might you construct one to show a causal connection rather than just uh, this association that we saw in our little fake experiment. Yeah, you'd you'd have to maybe see you know if have some kind of treatment where they are told to play video games and then see if you know there's an improvement in the treatment group versus the non-treatment group. Um, yeah, with nutrition, I always I'm always uh, suspicious of yeah. You know, so there's all always things about you know the the benefits of wine and. I always think, you know, well, this is great. I love to hear nutrition studies that say wine is good for you. It is wonderful. But then I think, well, you know, who drinks wine? Uh, it's more the, you know, well, in the U.S., it's, you know, socioeconomically linked. Have they really factored out all of those socioeconomic? F- so, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll control for, uh, you know, race and gender and age or something. Uh, but, you know, it's very hard to control for everything, socioeconomic and so it might just be that you know maybe wine is not good for you but you know being being rich is uh, mm-hmm. you know so um yeah so there's always that kind of danger with all the kind of nutrition studies okay well craig is there anything i i want to be respectful of of your time is there any anything else that you wanted to talk about well, I did want to just mention because I've got the prop here of my uh, pseudo. My, my this would be a, a some physics pseudoscience, and an example of it having been around for a long, 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 long time. So this, wait, let's see if I can. Sure. Can I get this in here? 
Yeah, for those who are just listening, what, what, and for me, what am I looking at right now? It looks like a this Ferris wheel. This is a purported uh, perpetual motion device. Put up in the air a little bit. Okay. Yeah, a perpetual motion device. So this device this is a replica uh, of one that was designed by the French architect Hanacourt. In the, okay. year tw- in the year 1235. And so it's supposed to go... You, give it a, you give it a spin. Oops. Give it a spin. <laughs> it's supposed to go forever. It doesn't seem to work particularly well. It doesn't seem to work at all. Uh, the energy companies are safe. Okay. Uh, this thing is not going to work. Huh. And you know, so, uh, Da Vinci talks about it, and he completely demolishes the idea of it. You can sort of see... What's really going on is so it's got twelve hammers. Uh-huh. So yeah, for people who are just listening, this is a basically a wheel with twelve hammers around it. The hammers are supposed to make it propel it to keep going, um, but it doesn't. And in fact, if you compare it to like a bicycle wheel, yeah, you know, if you turn your bicycle over and you just spin the wheel, it might go for a really long time. Yeah, this one it doesn't go at all, and in fact, it starts to go backwards a little bit. <laughs> so what I love about it is that the you know the, of course the fundamental design is absolutely flawed because if I sanded it more, got rid of friction, put in more oil and things like this, it would work even worse. Oh really? Because the fundamental design, you know, these hammers are actually acting kind of like a brake on the wheel, and if you look at it, there's usually about five above and seven below. And so what it really is, is like an unbalanced pendulum. And so it just wants to go, you know, like this. Yeah. And what's awesome about it is that uh, there's surviving text from 1235 where uh, an observer describes that it worked in the presence of the king, not otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> That's good stuff. And so hmm. you've had uh, these kinds of things, you know, uh, scammers trying to uh, push use physics in various ways uh, in this kind of pseudoscience for the purposes of you know extracting favor or money or something from somebody for a long 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 time. And in fact, there's at least there are many cases of something with this basically the same design that have been given official U.S. patents by the patent office. And so it, this continues. And uh, it but has a long, long history. Very cool. I, I appreciate the show and tell. It's one <laughs> yeah. of the first instances of, of show and tell on the podcast. And I, I now see we need to have more of it. But right. anyway, uh, Craig, this is such a fun conversation. And thanks so much for having it with me. Hold on, Geeslings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And... Also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so.